Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Dr. Mark Futado, who regularly comes and preaches the word to you, is a dear friend and colleague. And just five or six weeks ago, he and I spent spring break out in the Seattle area across the country. And throughout the week, uh, as we did various things and found ourselves every day at lunch and again at dinner in the evenings talking, he always spoke of three things very regularly. And if If you've listened to Dr. Furtado here for a while, you'll have picked up on some of this, I trust. He spoke of carpentry, which marks he and his family, and he spoke of tobacco, which also marks he and his family, and then he spoke of this congregation in Vera Beach, of Christ the King PCA, and of your faith and hope and love, and so it's a delight to be here with you and to worship with you. And I trust to hear God's word with you. If you're anything like me, or if you've, as was mentioned in the prayer, been paying any attention at all to the news as of late, times are difficult. Times are difficult in so many ways. Just last month, for the third straight month, we saw video released of ISIS executing Christians in large numbers. This time, Ethiopian Christians with a beautiful witness of faithfulness to the very bitter end, even as they were at the point of death. And we look at our own land, not just the struggles of a a faraway place, but occasions ranging from Ferguson to New York to this past week in Baltimore where injustices have led to communities that are festering and boiling. And we consider the ways in which our economy in so many ways is prospering again, and yet so many struggle. So many don't participate in those growing blessings. So many fight and work and overdo it trying to make ends meet. And we consider the social fabric of our country and the way in which, in so many ways, we find it hard to talk to each other and to peaceably and civilly deal with those who are different from us. And events recently in Indiana remind us in a pointed way of how difficult times are, even here, even in this blessed country. And I think it's in times like these that it's instructive to look to places in Scripture, places like this epistle to the Hebrews, where brothers and sisters long ago went through those sorts of troubles. Trials and challenges where they were physically assaulted, and we learn in the 10th chapter here, thrown into jail for their faith. Times where the social fabric of their city was being torn apart where there was great mistrust, times where it very much seemed that a civil, peaceable life was not in the having. And here we have a word, a word that's not about suffering, but is for people who are in difficult times, a word that points us away from the troubles and unto The God who stands over it all as Lord and King. And the Christ who's entered it all and gone to the very bitter end for our sake. And so it's my privilege to 
hopefully lead you through this passage this morning and leave you with what I hope is a word of hope, a sustaining word, a word that can bless you as you enter into and go through still more difficult times ahead. If you've ever raised small children, or if you've ever been a small child, you'll know they don't need to know how to use something to put it to good use. Pots and pans can be weapons of war as well as tools in the kitchen. A diaper can just as well be a hat as a huggy. Pillows and sheets can be forts or tents or castles as well as they can be helps to good sleep and rest. Imagination paired with naivete breeds all sorts of confident uses of things, doesn't it? It's amazing what small children will do when they haven't a clue what something is for. Matters are different with us, though, aren't they? With us, with adults, matters tend to be remarkably different. If you're perplexed by the workings of that new technology, you don't use it. And in fact, you avoid it, right? If you're overwhelmed, as I am, by what happens under that mysterious hood of your car, you don't go exploring, right? When adults don't understand something, more often than not, we simply avoid it. We ignore it. We run as far from it as is possible. And I wonder, does that have spiritual implications? Aren't there occasions and areas of our spiritual journey where because of an ignorance, an unfamiliarity, an overwhelmedness or unsurety, we steer clear of engaging something God would have for us. Sociologists of religion point out regularly that many who name the name of Christ as Lord and Savior do not evangelize or witness to their neighbors, family, and friends. And one of the chief reasons they list when asked for why they're reticent to do so is that they feel simply incompetent to do so. They don't know what they would say. They don't know how they'd say it. They don't know how they would initiate it or even answer a simple question. And so oftentimes a lack of familiarity, a lack of confidence, a lack of knowledge about how something is to be done and what it's for leads to steering clear of the purpose and protocols of things in the Christian life. One area that I think this also plays out in the lives of Christians and churches, is the reading of the Old Testament. It's a strange document. Tells of people living hundreds of years long. Some of us think that sounds promising. Some of us think, my goodness, that's tiring. It recounts wars, oftentimes brutal, even troubling wars. It talks about sacrifices at length, these gruesome, bloody affairs that occurred even here in sanctuaries, in holy places. It includes laments, genealogies, proverbs, extended legal codes and laws that seem to go on forever. For many, it's dizzying. For others, it's problematic. And again, if sociological surveys of evangelical preaching in our time are any valid indication 
churches often respond to that by steering clear of their Old Testaments, by ignoring it, by pretending it's not there. As we consider this passage from Hebrews 1 this morning, I believe we'll be guided back, guided back to better understand that First Testament in light of Jesus Christ. And so we'll look back through this lens of Hebrews 1 to see what the Old Testament is and how it leads us unto Jesus. And then we'll be led forward to see ways in which looking at and through Christ throws illumination and light on our lives now. So first look with me, if you would, at verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 1, where we see The Old Testament addressed directly as a text that helps us look to the Son. And more broadly, we've got to say the epistle to the Hebrews as a whole is a tutor and a guide to reading the Old Testament as a Christian. If you want to be able to commune with God by meditating on the first two-thirds of His Word, praying over this portion of Holy Scripture, then you've got to know what it is, what it's for, what it's intended to call you towards. And here, we have a clarifying word. At many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Hebrews doesn't suggest the Old Testament is more homogenous than you thought. In no way does it tone down or tamper with the variety of that huge Old Testament. It addresses many situations. The phrase many times here points to that. Ranging from primal origins to the formative times of Israel, even times of slavery in Egypt, times of trial and struggle, times of success and flourishing in the land, times of disappointment and exile and lament. And its texts speak in very different forms. Again, the phrase, in many ways, is used here to characterize its speech. It tells stories. It speaks in terms of laws or legal codes. It offers genealogies of generation after generation. It includes beautiful poetry that is so exalted and so poignant. It includes... Dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds of proverbs shared and prophetic judgments rendered. In each case, though, notice what Hebrews says. In all those times, and in all those many ways, God spoke by the prophets. These texts aren't mere artifacts of how people used to do religion. They're God's divine address. It is God's speech to our fathers. And they're not simply brilliant or especially pious writers from back in the day. They're prophets, those who speak a word from the Lord. Like Isaiah, who was shown that vision of God's glory and then called to go testify. Or like Jeremiah, who had God's word actually placed upon his very lips and was then called to go and speak it to his people. Verse 2 then tells us, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Hebrews moves forward now to contemporary events, to recent 
words. God has spoken to us by His Son. Two ways the new speech is sort of contrasted with the old. It's to us, not to our fathers, and it's by His Son, not by prophets or intermediaries. And in the gospel accounts, we see that, don't we? So often that Jesus speaks, we're told, as one who had authority, not like. One of the otherwise remarkable, intellectual, well-schooled scriptural teachers of Israel. And we're told even more that he's more than a prophet, for he is the very utterance and fulfillment of prophecy, not just its mouthpiece. We're told God has spoken to the Hebrews in these last days, according to verse 1. It's a phrase drawn from the Old Testament, from Joel chapter 2, where this remarkable image of the future and of God's return and of God's deliverance to a people who are struggling, people who are overwhelmed by the news, people who are tired by the daily grind, people who are frustrated by their besetting sin. Does anything sound familiar? A word from God at that time speaks of a day when sons and daughters, when a generation to come, who in the day you'd worry anxiously will have nothing better, will have things far worse. But when Joel brings a word from the Lord that says God will enter in in their time, God will intervene in their day, God will come down in those last days, history is going to end not by the clock winding down, not by us finally bringing about hell, but by Christ coming again in glory, by heaven coming to earth. And here we see that's identified with Jesus. God's spoken to us by a son in these last days. Jesus' first coming is the beginnings of that kingdom. It's the beginnings of that day. It's the entrance of God's intervention. It's the goal. It's the telos. It's the last act. And so we see that that long tale of our fall away from God and God's restoring us unto Him is being described here. And it describes the way in which that occurs. In verse 2, His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. I want to suggest that's absolutely crucial. Oftentimes we run past that. It sounds nice and lovely and lauds Christ, but it it doesn't have weighty significance unless you stop and think about it. Those verses are crucial for thinking about how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in so many ways because it links the beginning and the end. He is the creator of the world, and he's the one who's going to be heir of the world. He is, as Revelation reminds us multiple times, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's not a plan B. He's not an audible called at the line of scrimmage. He's not a second choice, as if God wished for another way and had to sadly turn his intentions. No, the New Testament, the coming of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, This is simply the latest and final epic in this onward march of God's kingdom, a kingdom that has been envisioned from the very beginning. And I want to suggest these few phrases prompt us to read our Old Testaments then as looking to Jesus. 
They do so at many times and in many ways. They're not all of a sort. Some texts overtly offer promises to be fulfilled, like Joel 2, where you read of it in a prophet, and later you, in Acts 2, as Peter is preaching at Pentecost, you see this declared officially that it's fulfilled. Other texts, though, describe simply a problem that festers, a problem that's got to be addressed with, a problem that continues generation after generation, era after era, and only in the coming of Christ and the writings of the New Testament do you see that problem resolved, those issues brought together to a peaceable, harmonious end. Other texts reflect on themes, offices, needs, a priesthood, kingship, a line of prophets that will be taken up, that will be presented to us as fulfilled in Jesus, who's the final bearer of them. Other texts, as you'll see later in Hebrews 11 and 12, offer moral examples of which Jesus is the perfect and final vision. In different ways, then, in a variety of ways, the Old Testament points forward to Christ. Appetizers, contrasts, Examples, continuous threads. A recent commentator has used the image of the sonogram to point to how you ought to think of your Old Testament. I want to commend that to you. If you have ever observed a sonogram, you'll note that there are a number of things going on there. First of all, it's, it's your first photo of a child, your child or a relative or friend's child. It's a remarkable thing to observe, to be able to identify a hope and a delight and a future visually. And for we men who don't carry a child within, it's one of the first tangible ways we can identify. We don't have morning sickness to tip us off to something that's coming, right? We don't have discomforts to help us experience this along the way and prepare for it. This is the first illustration and and physical signal to us of something remarkable that's coming. But if, if you're anything like me, you look at that sonogram image and you hold it up to the child that's eventually born. I remember when I first saw it, I thought it looked like a jelly bean. It's my son. If I blink and kind of squint, it's... Not clear. It's not distinct. It's not detailed. It's developing. Right? It's opaque. But it's identifiable. And that is your Old Testament. Pointing to Jesus with growing detail. Pointing toward the Son with slowly increasing definitiveness so that we're tutored, so that we're prepared. Like a parent, we wouldn't be ready if you found out you were pregnant one day and then the next day suddenly, voila, the child is there to love. As with the growing detail and the further identification of the child in that sonogram, month by month, doctor visit by doctor visit, 
So the Old Testament prepares us to see Christ. What does it tell us as we look at Jesus? Verse 3 tells us some remarkable things. Not just about what he's done, but who he is. He's the radiance of the glory of God, according to verse 3. He's like the light radiating from the sun. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's not just an effect. He's not just a sort of side impact or result of God's action. He's actually the imprint. The, The image is one of a stamp or a seal of God's own nature. He is that character and that seal of God. He shows God's glory, in other words, because he bears God's glory as God. Now, you know what's remarkable is that was meant to be us. If you remember your Bible's beginning, you'll remember that God delighted in creating the man and the woman in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And as he spoke of them, the first thing he said was that they were to be made in his image and in his likeness. We were meant to be that imprint or that seal that bore God's glory upon it. Christ is. He bears. He fully represents that glory of God like an imprint. Whereas ours has, if we're honest, turned into not a clear mirror that reflects God's image back to him, but a funhouse, circus-like mirror that distorts the image because of our sin, because of our struggles. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, according to verse 3. It's not that he's just God, but he does what God does. He's created the world, according to verse 2. Here we're told he upholds it. He continues to sustain it in verse 3. And again, you and I, Adam and Eve, men and women, were supposed to uphold the world. Right after they were named as the image of God in verses 28 to 30 of Genesis 1, they were told to subdue the earth and to have dominion, to be fruitful and to multiply, to to reign on God's behalf, not to be divine, but to be God's undersecretaries, God's ambassadors, God's vice regents, those who would reign on his behalf over this world. And of course, you know how we fared. Consider Not just Adam's fall in Genesis 3, but that of every ruler throughout the Bible. Even King David, beloved of God, a man with a heart unto God, and yet a traitor to his country, an adulterer and murderer. Jesus, Jesus is the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. Ultimately, then, the Old Testament, as we read it, leads us to see that to know God, we need God. To bear his image, we need God. To rule the world in God's way, we need God. Reading the Old Testament draws us to observe that his word, his living, potent word, sustains everything. And notice all this is told in the present tense. He is. He does. He acts. Not only are we told that God did speak, but we're told that he acts by the word of his power now. We need God. We need God's speech. 
All our next best options have been tried, in other words. Priests, prophets, kings, right? You read your Old Testament, Abraham was inconsistent. He was so faithful and remarkable at times. And then, frankly, if I had a daughter, I wouldn't let her date him. Right? Moses, willing to go where God led after he protested a few times and Monday morning quarterbacked God's suggestions in Exodus 3 and 4. But eventually he got angry and impatient and he had to be punished and he couldn't go into the promised land with his people. David, as I mentioned, a man after God's own heart. And yet, as we know, a man who went after the wrong woman's body and was led further into sin and temptation as a result. In many ways, remarkable witnesses. In every case, imperfect witnesses. We need not just the next, not just a little better, not just a further step up the ladder of human progress. We need God's intervention. We need not just the hope of ascending a little higher, maybe, from Abraham to Moses to David to hopefully something a bit better. We need God descending, divine intervention. And that's what we see as we look at Jesus, according to verses 1 to 3. But the text goes a little further. As it helps us read our Old Testaments and see how they lead and help us look to Jesus... They also help us look through Jesus or along Jesus at ourselves. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, wrote a short essay called Meditation on a Tool Shed. And he tells of going out into the countryside uh, to a small tool shed in the woods. And he describes opening this rickety door and looking in. And it's completely dark except for a beam of light that shines from a window high in the wall. And he tells of looking in and seeing that powerful, glorious beam of light. Seeing nothing but it. Being starstruck, as it were, in that moment. And then he tells of how he walked in. And eventually he stood in that beam of light. And he could no longer see it. The beam was gone. But he could see everything by it. He could look along it, and he could see the glorious greens of the tree canopy above that tool shed, and he could see what surrounded him in that tool shed, and he describes there the difference between looking at something and observing it and looking along or through something, by something, seeing everything else in its light. Both are important. Both are important. We're called to, as Christians, have a Christ-centered focus and to look to Jesus as the one who resolves all our problems and provides all our blessings. But as we look at Jesus, we also look through Jesus. And as Christians, we learn to see everything else in his light, illumined more fully. And we see that a bit here in verses 3 and 4 as well. After making purification for sins, he sat down, we're told, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice just a few things here about this verse that are implicit and that you've got to know for this to make sense. First of all, 
as we learn from our Old Testaments, purity is needed. Being clean is needed. Being set apart is needed. Secondly, according to our Bibles, a priest is needed to cleanse and to purify that which is by itself not clean and pure, which is not sacred, but is instead common and impure. Third, though, notice the work of this priest. After he purified or cleansed things, he sat down. Surely the Hebrews would have found that strange. Because the one thing a priest doesn't do, according to the Old Testament, is sit down. There are many things priests do. Priests are busy people. I know oftentimes people today, sometimes if they don't know how churches work and they don't know how the ministry works, they think, you know, the the preacher works an hour a week, right? You would never have that false notion, in most cases, regarding the old priesthood. They worked all the time. They were busy. And we see, as we read texts like Leviticus, how they had to show great care to dress certain ways, to order the temple and the tabernacle in certain ways, to prepare the people in certain ways, to prepare the sacrifices in certain ways, to undergo very specific protocols to make sure things were all right, to go into the Lord's presence at the right time and in the right way for the right duration and to the right end. They were busy people. And Hebrews will later tell us they had to keep doing it. They had to keep doing it. It's as though there was a clock running, and they just went back and reset it every time, so it kept tick, 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 ticking. And their goal was simply to keep it from hitting the buzzer eventually. They never turned it off. They simply had to keep going back in and resetting it. Day after day after day. And so they were always on their feet. Like a busy mother in a kitchen. No moment to rest, no peace to enjoy, always something yet ahead. And here we're told, he sits down. He sat down after making purification for sins. We're told later in chapter 10, verses 11 to 14, that by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's remarkable is by looking at what Jesus does for you, you can see what you need. That's often the case, isn't it? Uh, Some of you will have had serious medical conditions at various times or had friends and relatives who have been in dire straits. And oftentimes you can't understand the nature of your problem until you hear the nature of the solution that is described. But when you know, the doctor says, just stay on the the drug cocktail. Or when the doctor says, chemo is going to be needed. Or when the doctor says, we have to kill your stem cells and give you a transplant. You know the nature and the severity of your problem. The solution shows the depth of your need. And so it is with God's care for our souls. By seeing what God does to deal with our depravity, by seeing what God does in sending His Son, 
we see who we are. We don't simply need a better teacher. We don't simply need a priest who can stand on his feet a bit longer. We don't simply need a king who will avoid the adultery and the murder. No, we're told according to Hebrews, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Who then, right? Whose blood's going to take the sin away? Whose blood's going to be effective and definitive enough? And the only answer that makes sense, according to Hebrews, is a human being. Only our blood will take away our sins. Because our blood is precisely what's owed for sin. And Hebrews takes it a step further. Just as that bull or that goat had to be perfect and unstained to be offered just to reset the alarm clock and keep it ticking another day, so this greater sacrifice must also be perfect and sinless and stainless perfect and unblemished. And so chapter 7, verse 26 tells us it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And so we see here, we see here what that Old Testament showed us only like an ultrasound or a sonogram. Here we see it clearly. Animal blood isn't going to suffice. And sinful human priests can't close the deal. We need someone greater. We need a human priest who's come from the very heavens and who's been preserved from the stain of sin. And when we're tempted to think we've arrived, we need to be reminded that we were bought at a great price. As we look at Jesus, we see our need. And as we look through Jesus we see our personal reality. Oftentimes as Christians, we are inclined sometimes to self-forgetfulness. We have been cured, we have been raised anew, and we forget that we continue on as those who need that great high priest. As we look at what he has done and is doing, we see a very real truth of ourselves. We are depraved sinners. We require not a drug cocktail, not even chemo, death and resurrection. We require extreme measures because of our radical, our radical sickness unto death. But there's a second thing we see as we look along and through Jesus and see what light he casts upon ourselves. And verses 3 and 4 speak of him sitting down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Right? The last point describes this vision of our depravity. And as we look at what he does for us, we see our great need. This facet of the text shows us the great dignity, remarkable dignity, that's ours in and through this Jesus. We don't just receive in Jesus neutrality before God. We don't return to a position of trial and probation and ambivalence before God our Father. We don't go to life back before the fall in Genesis 3. Christ does take us out of hell. This is no small matter. Christ does bear the curse for us, and that's remarkably significant. 
But greater still is where he takes you to. The right hand of the majesty on high, we're told here. God has remarkable, remarkable designs for your life. He's made you in his image and likeness, according to Genesis 1. He's given you dominion that's his own and tasked you with serving as his ambassador, as his vice regent, ruling over his creation on his behalf. And while sin distorts that image, and while its sickness throws off the way in which we subdue this earth and exercise dominion, And while so many from Adam and Noah and Moses and David and Israel as a whole fail to fulfill that high calling, God promises nonetheless a son eventually will do so. In the verses to follow, verses 5 to 14, Psalm 2 will be quoted and 2 Samuel 7 will be quoted where God spoke of a human ruler. And in addressing his servant David, he speaks of how there will be a king from David's line who will rule forever and will bring peace and justice, and righteousness, and all the things you ache for when you watch the evening news, and when you take a register of your experience before you lay your head down at night. Those yearnings, those desires, are promised in God's final Davidic ruler, and Hebrews takes that language here. The son of these last days is that long-promised ruler. Verse 5 is actually going to quote Psalm 2-7. Psalm of this David. And it's going to quote 2 Samuel 7.14. The great promise of that eternal Davidic king. And this son's inheritance that we read of here is greater than that of angels even. Now that's a, a greatly debated phrase. What his inheritance is and what this name is that he receives. Whether it refers to something divine or to something human. Given that there's a a change of affairs, he inherits this and he becomes this, it likely doesn't refer to his divinity because he always was God and he always did bear God's name as the eternal son. Rather, it speaks to his rule as a Davidic king, as a son who assumes a throne, who reigns with God. Jesus fulfills his calling as a sacrificial victim. He liberates the enslaved. He leads us out of hell and into God's presence, and he assumes his reign now in the throne room of God. And there we see here clearly what we saw opaquely in the Old Testament, in those sonograms. We were designed for dignity, and we were intended to reign on high with God. We're not mere servants in the Lord's house. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King. If through His sacrifice we're reminded that we will have nothing apart from our death and our sin being dealt with in the most dire and invasive of surgeries, then here in His inheritance and His name and His sitting on the throne at God's right hand where we will eventually be and where Hebrews calls us to enter into boldly and with confidence, we're reminded that we aren't just given life, but abundant life, life with God, blessed life, dignified life. God's design is not just to keep you from flatlining spiritually, 
God's design is that you might flourish by being with him forever. And that he might share his life with you. And as we look at Jesus, his descent and his humiliation shows us our great need because of our depravity. But as we look at Jesus and see through him what light he throws on ourselves, we also see how his ascent and his exaltation shows us the great dignity, the great glory and honor that God bestows on us by grace, by grace alone. Perhaps you, some of you, have seen the early 1980s cult classic South African-produced movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's a remarkable story. A glass Coke bottle, a glass Coke bottle falls from an airplane over the African wilderness amongst a bunch of tribesmen who have never encountered modern civilization and its wares. And they receive this gift from the heavens and they know not what to make of it. And the movie is first a comedy and then a tragedy as you see them trying to make sense of what this is and what it, what's to be done with it. And they try all sorts of things. And eventually it brings about great strife and schism in the community. And they finally have to take one member of, of the tribe and send him off to get it away. To remove the temptation that seems to be throwing their entire community off. Eventually, they decide the gods who dropped this must be crazy. And it must be taken away to preserve them. Too often we're like that. We look at ourselves. We look at our communities. We look at what it means to be human. And we don't actually ask, What were we made for? How do we properly do this thing called life together? And we all just try our way. We do what comes naturally. We do what is immediately pleasurable. What brings immediate reward or recognition. And oftentimes, those competing delights and desires and convictions lead to schism and to strife. And oftentimes we do in so many ways express the attitude that the gods must be crazy. But in texts like this, as we look at Jesus, and as we look along and through Jesus at what light he casts upon us and who we are and who we're intended to be, we can see accurately what the Coke bottle is for. What it is and what it's for. We're reminded in the Heidelberg Catechism's very first question, I'm not my own, but I belong in body and in soul, in life and in death, to him. We need help even to look to him, to grasp his person and work, to discern why news of him is good and life-giving. And I think this text, I hope, gives you a sense of how you can receive his word as a tutor and a prompt to help you look to him time and again and many times and in many ways looking to Jesus. Seeing in particular those old, obscure, sometimes inchoate words that only vaguely point to him, but that nonetheless are a gift and a revelation 
to sustain you. Perhaps better put, as you see that Old Testament challenging you and describing you and your problems, you can see more and more clearly how it's pointing toward and beyond itself to a Savior who's going to come from elsewhere, from heaven above, and providing something like those Christological ultrasounds that prepare us to receive Jesus at his birth, that prepare us to receive Jesus described in the gospel accounts and in the preaching of the apostles. And so whether we're considering Genesis or the gospels, whether we're considering the Acts of the Apostles or Malachi, we're summoned to look to Jesus for what we so desperately need. Hopefully, though, second, the text reminds us how receiving him, how looking to him and receiving him reorients us to look at everything else. Scripture has a center, and the Christian walk has a center to look to Christ, but it has the widest of circumferences. Oftentimes, we worry and some critique the Christian faith for being so heavenly-minded that it's of no earthly use. And it's worth noting that while that probably is true of many, often, and that's probably true of all of us at times, that hasn't been the case historically through the centuries and around the globe. It's been Christians who are heavenly-minded, who've been of such earthly good, building schools and hospitals and going to the poorest of the poor and binding up social wounds and walking alongside the condemned and the marginalized and offering hope in the direst of situations. And it's precisely because there's a focus upon that heavenly center that there's an entirely new way of looking at all the dark and difficult spots along the periphery, along that wide, all-encompassing circumference. As we look at Jesus and maintain a Christ-centered focus in our lives, as we read the Bible and view our, our lives in its light, we've got to be vigilant to remember that this son has many brothers and sisters whose burden he bears and with whom he shares that inheritance, that heirship, that rule, that honor. Always he summons us to look through him to what is ours in him. When is this kind of focused look at and through Jesus going to be of help? Well, for these people, for the Hebrews, these truths about our need and about our dignity in Christ... These were significant in the face of tribulation. In chapter 10, we read in verses 32 to 34 that some were thrown into prison for their faith and that the others weren't ashamed to be identified with them because in that world, there weren't three square meals a day in the prison. You didn't eat and you didn't survive if your people, whoever they were, didn't come bring you food. Well, the catch, of course, is that if some have been thrown in prison for their faith, and if other people show up who don't look like brother or sister or mom and dad, they're going to be outed as being Christians as well. And so you can see the dilemma. 
If we don't take them food, they die. But if we take them food, we're going to wind up in there with them because people will know that like them, we also follow Christ. And the author writes, celebrating the fact that they weren't ashamed. And they went and they blessed their brothers and sisters who were imprisoned. And they counted it a joy to suffer with them in that way. What keeps you going and growing in the face of that kind of trial? The kind of trials that our Ethiopian and Egyptian brothers and sisters struggle so palpably today? The kinds of trials that men and women of faith in communities in Missouri and New York and Maryland face today? The kind of faith that many of us will need as our society in so many ways marginalizes or attacks us, as we've seen in recent days? What sustains you knowing that you, like they, are so needy that you required God to come down and to offer himself as your sacrifice? And knowing also that having done so, he doesn't just give you respite. He doesn't just reset the clock. He doesn't just leave you be, but he brings you into his throne room. And he bestows his dignity on you. And he has remarkable designs for you. A glorious calling. A name. Son. Daughter. Child of the Most High King. Knowing that, knowing that God is so committed to satisfy our needs and that he's so intent further on bringing us all the way home to dignity and to delight, knowing that love of God revealed in Jesus Christ sustained them and may sustain us as well as we journey together in difficult times. Let's pray and ask God to focus our minds on Christ, and to see ourselves in his light. God, our Father, we confess in so many ways we lead lives that are markedly blessed, and we live in a a land that is so prosperous, and we rejoice in those gifts. And we admit at the same time we have struggles, we, we bear cancer and disease, we walk alongside those who suffer addiction and broken families and depression and unemployment and struggle of every which sort. And we know that days ahead promise not just joy in you, but also struggle in this world. And so we pray that you would grant us the knowledge that in Jesus our great need, greater than the evening news could ever tell, that our great need is met once and for all. And we ask that as we look to Jesus, our great dignity and delight, greater than any billboard or commercial could ever promise, would be displayed for us as we learn yet again that we share that glorious inheritance and that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. We ask all of this in His holy name. Amen.